Okay, so let's do this. Um, I gave a keynote at the beginning of June, and uh, this is it. You're just going to hear the keynote. This is was a big crowd, um, like 200 people in there, and uh, yeah, you get to hear me to give my talk. Bonus. That's it. Okay, bye. Oh yeah, I forgot the name. This is Unstandardized English. I'm JPB Jones. Okay, bye. everybody. If you guys could all come in and take a seat. Thank you. Don't forget to check in on the SCED app so that you can get the PD certificate for this. And don't forget to do the evaluation afterward. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to day three of the New Jersey TESOL NJBE conference, Pathways to Success with Multilingual Learners. I'm Michelle Land. Uh, as of today, I am now the president of New Jersey TESOL NJBE. <laughs> um, it's an awesome, awesome uh, honor to be that. <clears throat> I would like to express my gratitude to all of you who are here, um, especially today. Friday is not as big a day, but this year it is. 
And we love that you're here to participate in this amazing conference. I'd like to thank our past president, our fearless leader the past two years during the pandemic, Maggie Churchill, over here. <clears throat> our executive director, Kathy Fernandez, who's checking in people. Um, all of the executive board members, past and present, and our organization members. I'd also like to express my sincere gratitude to our conference committee, who's worked so diligently. Last year, they pivoted from a traditional conference to a virtual conference. Then this year, they pivoted back to an in-person conference, but with the video library option. Um, all of these changes were were causing basically many hundreds of hours of extra work for this conference committee, and they did it without hesitation to give you the best opportunities for PD. Um, our conference coordinator, Sandy McBride, our business administrator, Gwen Franks, technology coordinator, Malin Pongrant, and our exhibitor liaison, Tina Kern, um, are the small but mighty group that has pulled this all together. Um, Without them, last year's conference, which hopefully you all participated in, was a wonderful success, and this year's would have been impossible. So if you are enjoying the conference, oh, here's Kathy Fernandez, our executive director. I know. <laughs> Thank you. So if you are enjoying this conference, please take a moment to share your, uh, your enthusiasm and encouragement with them because chances are most of them are out there working. Marilyn's right over there, so you can grab her afterwards. And of course, this conference could not be possible without the continued support of our sponsors. Um, we love them. We really do. And we would like to acknowledge first our diamond sponsors. Uh, they are Imagine Learning up the bar. Oh, sorry. Let's give them time. Yeah. yeah. They've been doing caricatures, by the way. Up the Bar Educational Achievement and Velasquez Press. But there's more. We also have platinum sponsors we're very grateful for. Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and National Geographic Sea Engaged Learning. We can clap for them together. We also would like to acknowledge our gold sponsors, iStation, Vista Teachers Insurance Plan of New Jersey, and Data Recognition Corporation, who we all know as DRC. Okay. And thank you to our silver sponsors, AFT New Jersey, Collaborative Classroom, MindPlay, Crabtree, and Benchmark Education, BookSource, and Heinemann Publishing. We really thank our sponsors for their loyalty and support of our conference, both last year and this year. <clears throat> Don't forget, if you are attending two or more days in person, you also are getting access to our video library recordings. The video library conference is a select collection of library workshops, and you will have access to start viewing them from tomorrow. And it will go into Labor Day, but keep in mind that you will only get PD until June 30th. So if you need the PD, make sure you do the viewing before June 30th. We're tracking the hours, and you will then get the PD certificates for the time that you're logged in. And while you're there, you can still visit our sponsors' virtual booths. 
Now, without further ado, I'm going to ask um, Kaya Schlesinger, our what do you call past past president, <laughs> um, to come up here to introduce today's keynote speaker. Thank you. Yeah, I'm like, wait. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Kaya Schlesinger, and as Michelle introduced me, I am a past past president of NJT BE. I'm also a member of our committee countering anti-black racism, as well as the Middlesex County chapter chair. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Gerald. Uh, Dr. Gerald is the training manager for Capital Impact Partners, a community development nonprofit. He recently completed his doctorate at CUNY Hunter College. And let's give him a round of applause. Congratulations, Dr. Gerald. That's very, very exciting. His scholarship focuses on language education, racism, and whiteness. He lives with his wife, young son, and his dog. He hopes you will join him on the journey towards decoding and decentering whiteness in language teaching. His presentation titled, What's Possible? Envisioning English Language Teaching After Whiteness is Decentered is based on a series of articles first published in 2020 in the BC TEAL Journal and subsequently in 2021 in Language Magazine. They focus on whiteness in language teaching and the harm caused by its exclusionary nature. This presentation travels from the past, how whiteness was centered in ELT to the present, the impact of whiteness in ELT to a future not yet realized, in which whiteness is decentered in the ELT classroom, in ELT training, and in the ELT industry altogether. This presentation calls for us to eschew shortcuts and to take substantive steps towards radical love for racialized students and teachers. His book, Antisocial Language Teaching, English and the Pervasive Pathology of Whiteness, will be published in September 2020 and is available for pre-order. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Gerald. I would usually do this without a microphone. Whoa, that's loud. Uh, but I'm just, uh, you know, this is my post-COVID voice over here. So, you know, lost a little bit of the, the power there. Uh, anyway, thank you, Kaya. Thank you, Michelle, for welcoming me this morning. I see that we are all here bright and early, although I suspect many of you didn't have to travel as far as I did, so you probably didn't have to get up at five today. Um, so what are we going to talk about today? Well, you see what the title is and you heard what she said, um, but I want to give a little bit of the genesis of sort of the work that I've been doing and um, what I'm trying to do here in, in the book that I wrote and so forth, which comes out in September 2022, to be clear. Didn't come out two years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it, uh, but you can pre-order it. But anyway, so uh, a couple of years ago, in January of 2020, I wrote an article that some of you might have read, the one that she mentioned, the Decentering Whiteness article in the BC Teal Journal. I did not plan it around any of the things that ended up happening in 2020. I wrote it in January, so we didn't know what was going to happen, right? But the way that academic publishing works is I wrote it in January. It came out you know, five million years later, but it turns out it came out in May, which is pretty fast because we were all on lockdown and I had just a lot of time to write and edit. And then it came out the week, like pretty much two years ago this week, like the last week of May of 2020. And I think we all know there was some stuff going on. 
that week, so people really wanted to pay attention to the issue. When I wrote that article, when I was planning to write the article, I said to myself, well, there has to have been an article like this that's about decentering whiteness, and I'll explain what that means if you don't know in a second, but um, there weren't really any, at least not published. Somebody might have written it, but you know, academic publishing doesn't always like to publish the most radical stuff. Um, so I wrote it and then it really was kind of, um, a unique article for the discipline. The discipline has had some shifts in talking about race, racial, linguistic ideologies, that sort of thing. If you're unaware, we can talk about it later. Um, but there still wasn't one that explicitly talked about whiteness and sort of the construction of it. So I wrote that and then People liked it. I gave some talks on it. And then some people started asking me questions and they said, OK, so let's say we decenter whiteness. Then what? Right. Because just putting out there uh, here is a problem is not all that useful without a possible solution. Now, to be clear, so much has to change. And we'll talk about that for these things to occur, that all of this is kind of a pipe dream. But we all have to work together to make it possible. But uh, I wrote with. Vijay Ramjatan and Scott Stiller, three articles in Language Magazine that were published from February of 2021 until February of this year. I don't remember what month they came out, but over the course of a year, that was sort of following up on the ideas from the original article. And uh, and then I wrote a book around the same time, which will be out that's a much more extensive version of this. You don't need to hear me talk about an entire book's worth of stuff. I'm sure I'll be talking about that at some other point in the future once it comes out. But that's the idea. Right. It's not just to lament the problems, which is part of this, but also to talk about, OK, let's put a vision forth, a possible vision for what the industry could become if we actually made the changes we need to. So that's the subject of the talk today. Uh, what's possible envisioning ELT after whiteness is decentered. I am. Oh, it went away. Come back. I am JPB Gerald, and let's continue. So that's a map. Do you, do you know where that is? Like what that's a map of? Wait, right, it's this whole sort of area, right? I got to go. I'll just yell. where I live, which is in Queens, in New York, uh, was originally Muncie Lenape territory. Now, Queens, part of its Canarsie territory, which if you know New York, the neighborhood Canarsie is named after that. Uh, but the point is, this isn't just the land acknowledgement, which is valuable, but to point out that this is related to what I'm talking about here, right? The imposition of English on this place is part of the imperialism that's endemic to the industry. So it's not just, oh, we acknowledge the land and we move on, but to think about how the fact that we came, not we, but people came over here and decided we're going to call this New Brunswick. This is England now, right? Or this is New York, right? Or this is Queens, right? This was all an imposition of the English language on people who didn't want anything to do with it. So I said that already. 
Um, the English language has long been a tool of oppression and erasure dating back from how the indigenous and the enslaved were forcibly assimilated. So when we think about, oh, I'm just in my classroom teaching the language, we have to think about the legacy of what we're doing. Does that mean we don't do it? No, it means we have to think about it, though. Okay? So this is today's agenda. We're going to talk about some terminology. We're going to talk about how whiteness ties to hierarchization, which is a very hard word to say, and I'm going to mess it up, but I put it in my own presentation, so that's my problem. Um, I'm going to talk about the impact of whiteness being centered. I'm going to talk about what has to be done to decenter it. It makes it sound like I'm just going to talk about problems for a while, but all of these sections are different lengths, so this is not, this is not to scale, okay? Uh, and then I'm going to talk about envisioning an ELT after whiteness, the actual subject of the presentation, and then we're going to talk. All right. I didn't know what the format of the, the room would be, if it would be circle tables or whatever, but you're going to talk to the people next to you. So just be aware of that. This is not just a lecture. I don't really like to lecture. OK. Terminology. I didn't find that picture. They suggested that. I guess when you look up words, you have glasses on or something. I don't know. OK. So um, this is all fun, but we're not going to talk about some serious words. Uh, first thing, what do we call people who aren't white? You got a lot of choices here, and I think the point that I'm making here, this thing is popping, uh, the point that I'm making here is that you have to be selective and, and careful with what you're saying, not so much because the words on this list are offensive, all right, but because we want to be accurate. So let's start at the top of the circle, okay? The top of the circle says non-white, even though I can't really see it very well from here, um, but I've done this enough times, I know what it says. Anyway, the word non-white is not wrong. There are times when it would be the right thing to say, but then you're defining an oppressed group by the dominant group. It would be like calling all women non-men. I mean, I guess that's true, but you wouldn't do it. Uh, so uh, there are probably specific times when you might want to say that, and you're describing everybody who's not white. But I think it's best to be more specific, and that's where we're going to go. You see the arrow? You understand. Anyway, uh, on the right, you see POC and BIPOC, okay? Some people say BIPOC, uh, whatever. Uh, anyway, POC, if you don't know, stands for people of color. BIPOC is for black, indigenous, and people of color. The black and indigenous are separated out because of the particular relationship that the enslaved and indigenous had to white people in this country. Doesn't mean that other people of color aren't oppressed. Anyway, these words were, or acronyms, I guess, were created by people of color. So when people say that they were imposed by white people, that's not true. Uh, but you will read in documents, in articles, in whatever, you will have people use these words when they don't actually want to say the word black or something like that. So if you mean black people or indigenous people or Asian people, you should say that. People of color, BIPOC, is perfectly fine if you must refer to the collective. I sometimes refer to myself as a scholar of color. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. But if you're talking about someone or one specific group, you should use a more specific term. Going down farther, you have minoritized. Now, I like this word a lot. You may or may not have heard this one. You've obviously heard the word minority, right? That's official language and sometimes you have to use what the official language is on the, the books when you have to apply for something or whatever. But minority is not, again, none of these words are offensive, okay? But not only is minority sometimes 
factually incorrect because the word means there's fewer of people in a place. Well, sometimes that's just not true, and yet we're still called minorities, right? Uh, but minoritized with the eyes there keys into the fact that there's a power differential, that people have had power taken from them or prevented from having the power. So let's think about a place like uh, like a Detroit. Black people are not the minority there, right? They would still be referred to as minorities, yet they're something like 80% of the population. But a lot of the time, they haven't had the power there. So that's a good example of how black people are minoritized in a place like Detroit. You would certainly say the same in something like a South Africa, right? We know that most of the people in South Africa are what we would consider black, but we also know they haven't really had all the power there for a very long time. So that's just an example of how minoritized works. The only reason that I wouldn't use this word all the time to talk about race is because you can be minoritized in other ways, right? You could be minoritized by gender, disability, and that sort of thing. So if you want to be specific to race, you could say racially minoritized, all right? Or you could say other things in front of minoritized. I do like the word minoritized, but it's not just about race. Same as with marginalized. You've obviously heard marginalized before, and that doesn't just have to do with race. I'm just showing it there because it's very similar to minor minoritized. But I think minoritized brings in a little bit more of the power differential. The last word, though, is racialized. Now, this is the one that I tend to use, and you'll probably see me using most often in this presentation, unless I'm being specific about a group of people. Because racialized like all the I's words, people love that suffix, is to show that there has been a process. It's also context dependent. So, for example, to be racialized is for a group of people to place you into a racial category. You can be racialized as white, or you can just, if you just refer to people who are racialized, usually you mean people who aren't white, right? But it also depends on your context. So I'm racialized one way here in the United States. Okay, obviously I consider myself black, people consider me black, but if I go to the Dominican Republic, I'm certainly racialized differently. It doesn't mean I'm not black, but that's seen very differently from someone who was born in the Dominican Republic and, and so forth, right? You know, ask anybody who is a person of color, they're using a different phrase, and they go to different countries, they're painted differently no matter where they go. And some of the places paint them well, some of them paint them negatively. It's another thing, and if I'm not just talking about black people here, right, if you're from, for example, Eastern Europe, you're definitely going to be racialized differently if you're in France versus if you're in the United States, right? So it's just something to think about when people are using these words. I tend to use racialized. They all have different times when they are probably the most appropriate word. None of them are offensive. It's just to say, think about what you're trying to say before you say it. Why am I saying all this? Because we have to talk about some other stuff. So racism, you know what this word means. And yet I don't think enough people really know what it means. OK, so it's racial discrimination plus societal oppression. All right. Everyone can experience racial discrimination, but experiencing at the same time as the societal, legal, et cetera, oppression only applies to certain people. The people it applies to depends on what context you're talking about. We're in the United States, so I think you know who it applies to. But it would be different if we were in a different country. But we're not. So um, everyone, that includes you, it includes me, has chosen to perpetuate it at some point, whether they've chosen it consciously or not. Okay? I'm not very interested in the very academic conversation about who can be racist or not all oh, these people can't be maybe whatever i don't really care but we can all choose to perpetuate it or choose to work against it there's a lot of peas in this i'm sorry they're popping in the microphone um anyway and that doesn't just go for saying racial slurs or things like that right well the whole thing we're going to talk about is how that's like the the 
very small percentage of what racism is, okay? It's making choices, and we'll talk about those choices that perpetuate the, perpetuate the system uh, as it is, okay? There's many forms of racism, so sometimes it helps to be more specific, okay? You could say anti-black racism, you could say anti-Asian racism, right? You could say anti-Muslim racism. I know Islam isn't a race, but I defer to Muslim scholars who say that the language is very similar to other forms of racism. It's not very important right now, but the point is there's lots of different forms of racism, okay? And a very important point here is do not say race when you mean racism. You will see this a lot in the news and in the newspaper. When In the newspaper, uh, when you hear, unfortunately, that someone was killed by the police or, or something or like the thing in Buffalo or whatever. They'll say they were killed because of their race. No one has ever been killed because of their race. They were killed because of racism. All right. Let's be clear on that. OK, someone I, I don't I don't want to credit the person incorrectly. I don't know who said it first, but they said that racism is the father of race. OK. So anti-blackness, it's really just a subset of racism not the only kind. It's pretty much the same thing as anti-black racism. It's just a different way to say it, okay? But I think sometimes this is an important concept that people don't think too much about because when I say there's lots of different kinds of racism, unfortunately, one of the very common things around the world, no matter where you live, is anti-blackness, right? People will say, well, we don't really have a lot of white people in this country, so therefore, you know, how does this apply? It's like, well, do you do anti-black things as a country? Are people with darker skin tones discriminated against, etc.? And that is true in a whole lot of countries. So, I mean, probably all of them. So, you know, it's just something to think about. Now, this goes for, again, not just individually mistreating people, but talking about oppression of blackness, black people, Black languages, right? I'm sure this is what Dr. Baker Bell was talking about, right? Black languages and black languaging, right? The way that black people use language, okay? Black bodies, whenever you hear a story about someone being horrible to someone because of they had cornrows or something, like that's what this is, okay? This is unfortunately one of the most historically reliable paths to whiteness, especially in this country, but not just this country. All right. Because we all know we've heard the story about how in the 19th century, this immigrant group wasn't even considered white and they're considered white now. How did that happen? Well, whether it's becoming police, OK, or moving into neighborhoods that kept black people out and then upholding those exclusions. Right. All of a sudden, over time, people were included in the white race. Now, it's a harder transition to do now because things are so fluid, but uh, it was definitely much more reliable uh, in the past. One thing to mention here, I like this quote, what's the life expectancy for black guys? The system is working effectively, that's why. So, white supremacy. I don't think I need to define this one for you, it's kind of what it is in the word, right? I'm just bringing this up to distance it from white nationalism, or as if to say, like, sometimes it's very, it's become, I don't know if this is good or bad, it's become easy for the news to mention that someone was a white supremacist you know, when they went and they did some horrible violence or something. It was a white supremacist. Yeah, OK, but let's be clear. White supremacy is unfortunately the system we all live under. So it's not very remarkable for something to be a white supremacist act. What a lot of these people are doing is white nationalism, which is to say they want an ethno state for white people. So when you're talking about, oh, I want to build a wall, I want to leave the European Union or whatever like that, like that's building a country specifically for white people. That's not just white supremacy. You can be, people can be white supremacists and sit in their house and not do anything about it. But white nationalism is like to try to build a whole new thing. 
So I just want people to be clear when they read in the news that someone did something that was a white supremacist act, maybe look a little deeper and see if what they really wanted was white nationalism. That's the reason I bring that up. But finally is whiteness. Now, some people may not like what I'm going to say here, but the system of whiteness is not old. I mean, a couple of hundred years, maybe it's old for a person's lifetime, but in terms of the, the, the history of, Uni of, not United States, but of people, it's not that old. It's a few hundred years, approximately the 16th century, depending on who you're looking at. But anyway, uh, it was created so that there would be a group of people that would, over time, because people would point out, well, there were originally white slaves. Okay, fine. But over time, it was a group of people who were going to be exempt from the ravages of chattel slavery and colonialism and so forth. Are there exceptions to this? Of course. But as an idea, as an ideology, as a system, hashtag not all white people, I'm not saying that, okay? But as a, a concept, it's built for, as I'm going to say and stumble over, hierarchization, exclusion, and that sort of thing. And so when we talk about its intersection with language teaching, which is what I'm going to talk about after this, right, you can see that as a system, it is inherently exclusionary and not inclusionary. So let's talk about hierarchization. There's no P's in there, so this probably sounded okay. So let's talk about ability, disability. One of the big things that I talk about in my work that I'm trying to bring into my writing is not just talking about race and language, but the sort of the triangle between race and language and ability or disability. So um, the conceptualization of ability and disability actually follows the way that race and racism were constructed, especially in this country, right? Obviously, there have always been people who, if we looked back, we would see them as disabled, someone who couldn't walk or whatever. That's not new, okay? But what we thought of as being disabled, right, rose alongside with, it was mostly in the 19th century, right, people who were unable to work. They weren't productive, for the society, okay? And uh, this also ties into how we define intelligence, particularly the way we think of IQ. If you look at the history of the IQ test, it's just a mess. Um, and so those we classify as linguistically deficient are also seen as less able, right? These things are all tied together. There's no like one axis of oppression that's over there by itself, not touching anything else. So when we think about the way that we define people based on their languaging, we really do have to think about the way this is tied to the way they're seen as able or disabled or anything like that. So then when we talk about ability and settler colonialism, right, for those who aren't aware, right, it's the version of colonialism where they actually like settle and take over things, which is what this whole country is built on, that and slavery. But anyway, um, colonial subjects were and are, because they're still colonial subjects, uh, viewed as childlike and not fully able because of their supposed, ling supposed linguistic deficiencies. So the imposition of what we call standardized English has always been a, uh, a tool of the colonial project, right? Before I get into the current industry, you know, people would go into countries and the people who were able to adopt the colonial language were suddenly seen as more civilized, right? And we still do this, we just don't do it officially. Okay, so our current industry emerged out of our ongoing colonial efforts, and to this day, languaging outside what is considered the standard is viewed as deficient rather than an equal variety. It's not just a language variation. We in this room will think, oh, it's a language, but we know that the actual way that these ideologies are built is not the way that we, perhaps more progressive people, think. Although I don't know what everyone in this room thinks. We'll see. Okay, so, and I'll get more into this. 
what we ELT professionals, and we don't all call ourselves that, but I didn't know what else to call us, uh, are truly promising to students, even without knowing that we're doing so, right, is the chance to get closer to intelligence, right? It's the chance to get closer to ability, and it's the chance to get closer to whiteness. Whiteness, however, is an ideology that depends on exclusion and supremacy. So this promise is doomed to be broken because no student can become white just by, you know, learning and adopting and improving on their language. I know we're not saying this to the students, like we don't come into class and say, if you learn English, you'll be white, but it's all the things that are implied by the ideologies that are in the system that we're perpetuating. Don't worry, there'll be time for questions and discussion, or you can yell at me later if you want to. All right, so let's talk about the impact of centered whiteness in English language teaching. And I'm still on all the problem stuff, and I'll get to the envisioning later. So, oh, wow, that is a hard color to read on this big screen. I apologize. <laughs> anyway, I probably have to go over here to read it better. So, in ELT, race and language are components of the aesthetic labor of teachers to look good, to sound right, to show students an inner circle divided in which they have inner, outer, and circles, right? And then another quote, I recall a complaint made by a parent to the clerk in 2009 But I did want to bring up those quotes when I came to them. The point is that for both teachers and students of color, all right, or racialized teachers and students, right, this has a very measurable and deleterious impact, even if it doesn't seem like as bad as if someone's yelling racial slurs or something like that. So how do we do something about this, right? So most of all, we need structural changes. Uh, you are all individuals, and I will give people individual advice shortly, but ultimately, nothing's really going to change if the industry doesn't decide to change. The industry is not going to change unless individuals change it, so it's kind of a paradox, but you can all agitate for the system to change, is my point. So I don't know how many of you are people who write articles for journals and publications. If you aren't, 
probably the best thing because I don't know about those things. But if you're going to be writing for journals and publications, we need a dedicated space that focuses on these intersections, right? When I do research for like articles to write about race and language, I got to go read the race articles and I got to go read the language articles and I got to go read the ability articles. But there's no place, you know, aside from the book that I'm going to release where all these things are in one place. It's just, I think that it, uh, it moves away from solidarity. It moves away from the way that we can come together to work against these issues. And it would change things. Now, of course, the revolution is not going to be paywalled. Okay, so I don't know how much revolution is going to come out of publications and journals. But if they're going to exist, they should be a lot better. However, professional organizations is going to be a big part of this. This is a professional organization that we're all members of. Well, technically, I'm a member of New York State, but whatever. Um, and, you know, it's kind of hard to change professional organizations. I'm sure any of you who've been a member of them have experienced. Uh, even if there are people in the professional organizations who want to do things better, the structure of such organizations is not like inherently racist or something like that, but it's the status quo that has maintained the system for however many years. And so therefore it tends to leave things in place. So unfortunately, if what, what scholar Victor Ray calls racialized organizations, these organizations are sort of set up to leave the same power differentials in place. Even if you get a new president who's all gung-ho about changing everything, and then you got another president and then maybe they're not so into it or, or you know, whatever it is. So all of these boards, all of this leadership, all of these priorities need to change explicitly, not implicitly, but explicitly, right? And that's something, if you come to my breakout session after this, we'll talk about how to do that. But anyway, but you individually, now I'm giving you advice, you. Uh, so white teachers especially, but not just white teachers, because I had to do this work too. We need to sort of interrogate our own identities, right? How have we benefited from these things and or been harmed by these things? How have we upheld the system in the past? I think one of the things that's hard for people is that when I learned a lot of this stuff, I don't know, three, four years ago, I had to contend with the fact that I couldn't go back and undo all of the harm that I'd done. Right. Not, I wasn't going around punching my students. It's not like that. OK, but I mean, like there were ideas and ideologies that I was perpetuating in the classroom that were not helpful to my students. You know, I had to go back and think about, you know, when I first started teaching in South Korea and, you know, I really did believe that the way that they spoke was deficient. Right. I didn't think about it too deeply. I just was like, well, I got to fix how they talk. I mean, that's my job. Right. Um, or when I taught adult students in New York and they came to me saying that they wanted to reduce their accents and I was like, great, let's do it. But I realized now that like, first of all, it's not really all that possible. And second of all, there's nothing wrong with the way that they speak, right? So every single one of us, unless you came out of the womb fully formed with all of your revolutionary ideas ready, right? That at some point in your career, you did something that perpetuated these things and you can't go back and fix it. You just can't. So that's hard for people to sit with. I have, I still have to sit with it. A lot of the reason I do this work is because of all the years I spent not doing it. Um, and so that's just something we all have to do. And I'm going to have everyone have a discussion about that sort of thing in a little bit. Additionally, I said this already, but the limited body of race and language scholarship needs to become part of the canon. I'm not a big part of fan of canons because I feel like that's part of the whole system anyway. But if there's going to be a canon, and there is, and these things should be part of it. 
Um, and then we need to build together to create communities that are sort of explicitly about addressing these issues, whether it's committees in orgs, although as having tried to create very many committees in orgs and jobs, I'm not sure how effective that really is, but we try. Uh, the point is though, it has to be explicit. It can't be implicit. It can't be like, well, let's talk around the issue or else you're never gonna do anything. Finally, the vision part, right? The positive part, not the look at how bad things are, but like we, we it doesn't have to be this way. All right, like this field doesn't have to do this. So in the classroom, and I, I, I tend to hesitate to give a lot of classroom advice because everybody has a different context. And if I tell someone to do something and they teach adults and someone who teaches five-year-olds, like it's gonna be a different situation. But there are things that can be done. So we need to stop framing standardized English as the only desirable form of the language, okay? And you can say, well, I do that already. But like, let's think about like how we can do that explicitly, okay? So if you teach in an area where there are a lot of different Englishes spoken, right? maybe bring the variety surrounding your school's location in there. You know, if you have, I'm just picking a country, if you have a lot of Colombian students, right, and they communicate in English with each other in a certain way, let's bring that in and say, okay, you know, how do you say these things, right? Put it on equal footing with whatever's in the textbook, which you may or may not have any control over, right? Um, we need to rethink intelligibility. How are we defining intelligibility? Okay, how are we defining being understandable because what we're really talking about is the what Flores and Rosa call the white perceiving subject, right? I used to say, you know, I used to do this. I used to use the best plus test. Anybody here use the best plus test before? Anybody? Okay, good. It's bad. Anyway, so it is. Uh, I had to give this oral exam to students and assess three things. I had to assess how well they understood me. I had to uh, assess how well I understood them. And I had to assess the complexity of what they were saying. Now, I will go off on a tangent about this, and let me cut myself off. But the, the question of how well I could understand them was when I started to realize a lot of these issues, because I could understand these students just fine. I'm an English teacher. I've been doing this for however many years. And I realized that they were saying, how well does the person on the street understand this person, right? But the person on the street probably hasn't spent their time actually sitting down and doing this work. So these people are going to be in a bad position anyway. However, it is true, and I'll get to this in a second, that people can learn to understand things better, much more easily than people can learn English. So anyway, it's true. Uh, so a convergence of interests. Now this sounds like I'm just sort of castigating like my teachers or whatever, but that's not true, all right? This is better for everybody if we make these changes, right? Uh, a, a system that only allows certain people in we can say it's based around skin color, but it's not really, right? Because there's much more to whiteness than just how people look. So you can be excluded from it anyway. And therefore everyone is in danger of sort of being kicked out of the club, right? You're not gonna just stop being white, but I just mean in the sense that like from not being acceptable in terms of the way things are. So, I mean, interest convergence is a, is a, is a you know, a theory in, in um, race scholarship. But basically, it's to show that none of this is going to change unless you all understand that this is in your best interest, too. This is not something to do out of charity for, for racialized students, although obviously they are the people who are the most, you know, won't uh, jeopardize by this. But it's good for you, too. And then we need to sort of de 
disentangle the native speaker paradigm, right? People will still, even if trying to support certain teachers, say we need to do more support for non-native speakers, right? But we've been having this conversation about native speakers and non-native speakers for like 37 years, okay? We started having articles, I forgot what his name is, Pike a Day, it was 1985, talking about the native speaker and how it's a problem. That's older than me. Okay, we've been having this conversation about native speakers longer than I've been alive. And where are we? We're in the same place. Okay, because the problem is, as long as there's a binary between native and non, all of which is kind of imaginary, we're going to have this problem because there's always going to be people who can be excluded and included. You see what I'm saying? The hierarchization, any binary which seems like it's even, one of them is going to be on top. So we need to move away from the binary between native and non. Okay, let's continue. Maybe I'll look at this side. Now nah, it's harder to look at that side. Anyway, okay, so um, we need to turn outward. I would like to change much about the industry, but I do think maybe it's idealistic of me, but if we were to do this, language education can be a way to change things outside of the language education field. You see what I wrote here, right? This is just an example, but basically like if we, challenge our students and challenge our colleagues to, for example, look at job ads and see how, you know, language is coming into the job ads in ways that is probably not technically illegal, but could still exclude people, right? We can change the way people are hiring. That's just an example. You know your context better than I do, okay? But we can use our skills in examining these issues to turn outward and actually do things differently. The second thing, and I don't know why I chose green on green, I'm sorry, um, but the the it's, it works better on like a computer screen because you can see everything. Anyway, um, the I don't like canons, like I said, but if there's going to be a canon, I do think that the lived experience of racialized students, teachers, etc., should be just as centered as whatever the scholars are saying. Okay, and I say that as someone who's written several scholarly articles. Like I don't think I know any more about this, like I was born into English, right? So anything I learned is from studying, but it's not from my lived experience. So, you know, that should be just as centered as anything some scholar is writing about language, especially something some scholar wrote about language 50 years ago. Um, and finally, teaching the perceiving subject. Now, there's actual work going on, at least at the University of Oregon, I'm not sure where else, where they are actually bringing, like, quote unquote, mainstream white Americans into their lab and spending time teaching them how to understand different varieties of English. And let me tell you, it takes like a weekend for them to understand things better, right? Whereas how long does it take for people to learn English, right? To get to the point where they'll be understood when the people doing the understanding could just go 10% of the way, right? Now, it's easy for us as teachers because we've experienced all these different accents and voices and varieties to be like, well, that's easy. But for the person on the street, all they have to do is sit down for like a couple of hours and they'll be able to understand almost any version of English a lot better than they did beforehand. So that, not that we should stop teaching English or something like that, but we really need to bring this in. This should be part of the English teaching. It should be a two-way street here as opposed to this top-down thing we're continuously doing. So just a reminder, um, if you retain the same ideologies and you just sort of diversify for profit, you didn't really change anything. 
Okay, don't do this here in the picture. That's a picture from the homepage of Princeton, where they pick, it seems like Captain Planet, one person from everywhere, and they just put it on the front cover. And I feel like I can make fun of Princeton because I went to Princeton, and when I was at Princeton, they put me on that cover a lot. <laughs> and I was not a remarkable student. It's just like all of a sudden, I just looked up and I was on the homepage. My mom would say, Justin, you're on the homepage again. I just like, oh my God. So don't do that. Because let me tell you, Princeton has been talking for years about changing things. Nothing has changed there. So, you know, but they want to put this stuff on the website. Or when I was applying to doctoral programs, first of all, these companies are sketchy, man, because I got all these emails from every school that I wasn't applying to. And I'm like, how do you know that I'm looking for school? But anyway, every single picture had like one black person, you know, so don't do that. Uh, but I want to tell you this story. That's me 10 years ago in Ecuador. So. My whole life, I want to go to Amazon Rainforest. Don't worry, there's a point to this. Um, I want to go to the Amazon Rainforest. And it, uh, I finally was able to go and I went to Ecuador, which the Amazon does go into, in case you're wondering, it goes into the corner of Ecuador. And the first night I got there, we, were, we had to take a boat to get to the cabin we were staying in. That's the boat. Well, you can't see the boat. Well, I'm jumping out of the boat, okay? And uh, they showed us like crocodiles, right? They showed us piranhas, right? And then at sunset, at sunset, we went swimming. And I said, are you out of your mind? You just showed us the crocodiles and the piranha and then the swimming. First of all, you see these other people. Everybody jumped in the water. I said, what is wrong with you? There's crocodiles. They, they show, they're over there. Like you can see them. What are you doing, right? Now, everybody gets in the water. You notice I don't have a bait. That's underwear. I didn't bring a bathing suit. Because I said, there's no way I'm swimming in this water. But then everybody gets in the water, and I'm the only one on the boat, and I'm like, well, okay, fine. I jump in the water, a couple of things. First of all, it was only like six feet deep, like they're standing, and I didn't, <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't expect that to be the case. Second of all, it was warm. I was like, oh. And I just like, I'm just like, well, I'm going to get eaten, so I'm just going to get in this water, and then nobody's going to, because there was no like cell phone service. Like, well, that's just going to be the end. And it wasn't that bad. Now, what am I talking about with this boat and this thing? Because I use this story in my dissertation, too. It's, I think that a lot of people, when they talk about racism, when they talk about whiteness, whatever it is that they're talking about, have this sort of on-the-boat attitude, and I did, too, which is to say, I am in a safe position. I would like to bring people up to it, right? You know, uh, this one person is experiencing this form of exclusion. I would like to make that barrier go away for this person or these five people or whatever. Fine. But when I did my interviews for my dissertation and for my book and everything, and these, my interviews were with like white educators, right? And what they realized is that this is not the kind of thing you can just sort of do in the workday and then go home and live an exclusionary life. I mean, you could do it, but you won't do it effectively. All right. This has to really become your life. And people say, that's kind of a lot of work. Yeah, okay, fine. But like, I think we need to move away from this on the boat attitude and move towards the in the water attitude. Okay, I know. See, I told you it had something to do with this. Um, but basically, no more boats. Okay, we need to get in the water and stay there. Right. So that means like when we think about how we live from day to day, Right. One of my one of my interviewees was talking about how she's trying to do stuff at school where she works. She works for university. It's hard to change the school. She's just a professor and not the dean. But then she goes home and she has to think like, 
my kids have a black friend, we can't be playing with toy guns outside. It's something they have to think about, right? Whereas you could easily just like, I don't really care, go play with your toys, right? And then you end up in a situation. That's a small thing, but it's the kind of thing that people are thinking about, right? You know, somebody was telling me that like they are thinking about what church they go to because they realized that the church hadn't stood up for anything that they believed in, right? So, or you can save the church and try to change the church. It's up to you. But the point is you have to be thinking about this from the time you get up to the time you go to sleep. That doesn't mean literally all of the time, but like you have to think about the decisions you're making. Um, and that's what I advocate for. We got to get in the water together because it's the only way it's going to work. The boat is not big enough. That's the way this thing has been built. That's the whole point that I'm trying to make to you is that the boat is not big enough. So we need to get rid of the boat, get in the water. It's not as deep as you think it is. And it might not even be that cold. So I'm asking you, and you're not going to answer this question right now, but it's something to think about. Who are your friends? What beliefs do you hold that adhere to white supremacy? There's something in there. Okay. And you don't have to be white for that to be true. All right. I certainly have upheld these things. I've said this many times. All right. What does your neighborhood look like? You say, well, you know, I grew up here. Okay. But, you know, maybe you won't live there for the rest of your life. Right. Are you someone who does hiring? Maybe, maybe you aren't. But if you are, if you have any power in this case, right, what are the hiring practices? Where are the ads being posted? Because that's always like, well, I can only hire who applies. Okay. But why is that who's applying? Okay. Little things like that. Can you change the way you assess English and grammar in your classes, whether you're a teacher or you're an administrator or a professor or whatever it is that you do? Because we all do different things. Okay. Basically, can you live your life to challenge these structures day in, day out? And it's the question I leave with you. Okay. So there's a summary. I'm not going to read all of that. But basically, it seems like it might be considered a risk for people to do this, which is why I talk about jumping off the boat into the water. But frankly, it's a risk every day that we don't do this, okay? For the people who are being harmed by this every day that we don't get in the water and stay there is a day that they are being further harmed. And it could, and it's harming you too, even if you are in the majoritized group, right? Because it makes it harder for us to form connections. It makes it harder for us to, to, to build things with people. And it makes it harder for us to learn, right? Ultimately, this is about love. I know it sounds like I haven't been talking about love or anything like that, but ultimately we're not showing people the love they deserve, right? And I want us to do that. And some people will take the end of what I'm saying and be like, it's all about love. Yeah, I'm like, no, 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 you, gotta, you skipped a bunch of steps, all right? Like we have to do a bunch of things before we get to the love part, but that's the end goal, okay? Right, you know, we can't, just continue with what we're doing because we are making it so that people's lives are more difficult and that their English learning is more difficult and their perception in the world is more difficult and we should not continue to do that. All right. So before I go downstairs, we're going to talk. I mean, you're going to talk. And then after that, you can ask questions. because I know I have 15 minutes. And so you're going to talk for, I don't know, five to seven minutes. Turn to the people near you. I don't know how it works in a row. If you want to do a I'm going to put questions on the screen, don't worry, but like be ready to talk to the people around you, however you want to define around you. I mean, you don't have to yell across things, okay? And I'm going to put some questions on the screen, and I'm going to give you, I don't know, seven minutes to do that, and then we'll come back together. Wrong button. So these are your questions, people. Hi. I know I told you to turn and then I said turn around. That was not a good way to do that. Uh, so reflect on your work. 
Wait, sorry, that was my fault. What specifically could you do to decenter whiteness in your work? And what would the results be if you did so? And how would you know you were successful in doing so? And then similarly, reflect on your life outside of work. What could you change in your life outside of work? All right, so you got about seven minutes. <laughs> 